Ruth takes us on a path of understanding God's purposes in the world and his faithfulness to his salvation plan that he set in motion. The great thing about biblical narrative, even one as short as Ruth, 85 verses, is that we go where the story leads us. Basically, wherever the story leads us, that's where we go. And if redemptive history is like a road, Ruth is like a bridge built where the road seems to have washed out. God is laying the tracks for his gospel promises to be revealed more fully in David's line, but then ultimately in Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. This is where this is angling. This story is angling. God is using ordinary people in ordinary circumstances, in ordinary times, to accomplish extraordinary things. And Ruth, as, you, as we mentioned last week, bridges the gap between the end of the era of the judges and then the beginning of 1 Samuel. And you think about what was going on in this time. In the time of the judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But then you have a breath of fresh air in Ruth because in Ruth, we see several characters, the main characters, doing what is right in God's sight. And there's such a contrast. Ruth 2 takes us to the question, do things happen by chance or by providence? Do things happen just merely by sheer luck or is God moving and in control? Now, it's a question I think that everybody asks and I think that there are a lot of opinions out there. There's no shortage of opinions. Some people say, well, yeah, everything happens by chance. You never know what's going to go on. It's all about uh, fate. It's, it's just, everything's a, a part of a fluke, you know. It's, an, it's accidents one after the other. It's coincidences one after the other. It's, you know, every uh, moment, and then there's a serendipity and uh, strokes of luck. But what we see in Ruth is that someone is guiding the events. We see this all through the Bible. In Ruth, we see God's providence, his providential hand guiding behind the scenes. We see that God is kind as his plan unfolds. That you can trust in that as a believer today. If you're a believer, you can trust that God is kind as his plan unfolds. And you see in Ruth that God uses human decision as he out in the outworking of his plan of redemption. Think about this. In chapter one, you had Orpah and Ruth, and they both were viable candidates to go back with Naomi. And they both were faced with a decision, a question uh, to do that. And one is eliminated from a significant role in God's redemptive plan just by her sensible choice. Orpah goes back. She didn't make a bad choice. She made a sensible choice. And I think the narrator of Ruth is basically inviting us to stand back in awestruck wonder and see how God uses human decisions and weaves them in into the outworking of his royal plan for Israel, but ultimately on the biggest, in the biggest scale, his plan of redemption for the world. Because Ruth is basically angling towards uh, the line of David being continued on and then ultimately Jesus Christ being born. And so, we saw this last week in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth is really in four acts. Every chapter is like an act in a play. So Ruth 1 is act 1. And we saw that in extreme need, God showed his people extraordinary kindness. There was a famine. There was an escape to Moab. 
There was the death of Naomi's husband and two sons. We had three widows. We had three funerals. And then the famine ends. And Naomi returns to Bethlehem bitter. She is bitter at God. Now, Hebrew words matter, and the the Hebrew words in chapter 1 strongly point to this, that she is bitter at God. One writer put it this way, Naomi lays the blame for her miserable fate directly at Yahweh's door. Another said, casting all subtlety to the wind, she charges God with responsibility for her change in circumstances and her grief. Now, to eliminate all doubt, you just look at verse 21 in chapter 1, and one writer put it this way, she places the blame for her present destitution squarely on Yahweh's shoulders, saying Yahweh testified against her. So basically, God took her to court and testified against her. So based on word choice, she accepted no responsibility for her fate, as one person put it, and considers that her tragedy was all God's fault. This is the mindset of Naomi as they come back to Bethlehem. But there is a positive note here. Even in her negativity, in this bitter disappointment that she's going through, she has this deep awareness of God in her life. You might be going through that. You might be going through a deep, dark valley of the soul right now, but you believe God exists, and you know things aren't going well for you, but you know that God exists. And and here's how how Naomi, Naomi put it. Well, he's not helping me. He's harming me. That's how she put it. This was her mindset in the moment, and I think it's best for us not to try to make it better than it really is because this sets the the contrast for what we see in chapter 2. So Naomi's bitterness at the end of chapter 1 is a huge contrast to God's kindness in chapter 2. I think it's Natural for all of us to want to smooth things over and make things seem better than they really are. Maybe make them seem not so bad, right? You want to do that. But honesty is honesty. She's being honest. Now, her mind is warped at that moment, but it is her mindset. Strong contrast with God's kindness. And don't we know that God has a way of working these things out? Changing our minds and leading us to the truth. And isn't God understanding and long-suffering with us aren't we glad you know many of the thank you yes it's true we are glad (laughs) yes we are glad you can respond (laughs) amen many of the first readers of ruth would have would have just uh totally related they would say yeah we can identify here's israel's history Littered with catastrophe, you've got famines and you've got enemies stalking and you've got plagues and earthquakes and they're threatening their very existence. So Naomi complaining and being bitter about God, that would have found an echo in the hearts of a lot of people that were forced into exile or that were facing life collapse. They would have found it very difficult not to question God. And by the way, we have a, an Old Testament book, 100% committed and uh, dedicated to lamenting lamenting lamentations and in that you see that the lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease they are new every morning his mercies never fail great is his faithfulness even in the midst of lament naomi really has no idea how things are going to work out it's like you and me we don't have we don't know what tomorrow is going to be like 
She has no idea how things are going to work out at this point. And she's only expecting the worst, right? That's what she's doing. She's just expecting the worst. How easy it is for us to do that. We don't realize God's working for our benefit. And that's what happens at the end of, of chapter 1. The curtain falls on chapter 1, and, and it's the beginning of barley harvest. Well, God had done something for the people of Bethlehem. He had brought food. This was probably late April, early May on our calendars. And what we see here is that God directs the path, the one who fears him. Proverbs 16.3 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So if you're a believer today, you better be sure that God will lead you and guide you and protect you and provide for your needs. But not all your wants. You got kids begging you to get, you, get them stuff this Christmas because they need it. No, they don't need it. Do you know that everything you think you need right now, you don't need it to exist? They went from Moab. Note that it was not Naomi's idea for Ruth to come back with her. She tried to dissuade her. She tried to persuade her to stay and go back to her people. So here you have this odd couple returning to Bethlehem. Naomi, and remember what she said, I went away full, I came back empty. Now put that one in your pocket for a moment because we're going to get back to that. You're going to see a reversal that happens in chapter 2, a reversal. But Naomi goes away full, comes back empty. But she comes to a town where God had reversed the famine and there's a new harvest in the promised land. Food was once again on the menu. Now Naomi is going through a dark valley of the soul. If, you're doing, if that's you right now, just you've you got to kind of embrace that and say, okay, this is what I'm going through. God knows, let me be honest with him. He'll, he'll pull me out of, of the deep pit. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 40. But isn't it easy to start imagining things when you're in the dark valley of the soul? Isn't it easy to start worrying about worst-case scenarios? We tell ourselves, God has abandoned us. I have nothing. Well, let me tell you this. If God does not promise you that he will give you grace to survive all your imaginings, God has promised you to give you grace through the things he actually brings into your life. Proverbs says that through presumption comes nothing but strife. All the what-ifs of life. Just message yourself up. But God gives grace to make it through what he actually brings to you. They come to Bethlehem. And concern number one for Naomi and Ruth is, what's for dinner tonight? We don't have food. We have no one to protect or provide for us, what are we going to eat? They were going to have to need to depend on the goodwill of family or the goodwill of neighbors, or they were going to have to scrounge food for themselves. You know, we don't think about this very often. We just go home and go, oh, there's food in the cupboard. We'll say there's nothing to eat when there's plenty in there because it's not the things we like. For them, they had nothing, and they're wondering, what's for dinner? What are we going to have for lunch? we're going to have when we wake up tomorrow morning. Let me get to the context of gleaning. One of my favorite, favorite ideas in the Bible, something that God put in place to help the poor. I think you'll see a picture of gleaning in a moment, but the gleaning, the gleaning and this is the picture of a, of a painting 
uh, by Jean-Francois Millet of 1857. How do I know these things? Well, when Angela and I were first married, uh, some friends of ours let us pick out some, some pictures for our home. And so we picked three things out. We picked a, uh, a Bible verse picture that said, in, in you do I put my trust. I remember that. We, we picked out a framed mirror. Okay, so it was a picture of ourselves and you. <laughs> and then the third one, it was my favorite, was a framed picture of this painting. We still have it. And, and there's a little thing on there. It says, the gleaners. And the reason we picked it is because it's such a humble painting of a de depicting of, of humble people doing hard work. It's just humble. What I see is humble, grateful workers. And when you understand gleaning in the Old Testament, it really brings it out. God had instituted a law in the law of Moses as a way to take care of the poor through basically a work for welfare program. Like, you work, you're going to get something for it. And so uh, the poor were not to depend on handouts. The poor were allowed to glean in the fields after the harvesters around the edges, gathering whatever had been left behind by the harvesters. The farmers were to leave the edges of their fields unharvested. Now, for the type A types, you're like, I, I couldn't do that. I can't leave the job undone, right? I got to get it all. They weren't to take every little last bit of grain. In fact, if, if a sheaf uh, fell on the ground, just leave it. Leave it for the poor who will come after you. You're going to be providing for those among you that are poor. You see this in Leviticus 19. You might want to go to Leviticus 19 and also Deuteronomy 24. But in Leviticus 19, and verses 9 and 10, it says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God is commanding this. God is saying, you're going to take care of the poor in the land. And then in Deuteronomy 24, a very similar restating of the same idea. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 and 20. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. Don't take all the olives off the trees. It shall be for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And here is Ruth, poor and a sojourner and a sojourner, and a widow. So both passages, she's two of the things. The writer of Ruth may have been referring to this uh, sizable, fertile shepherd's field that was about a half-hour walk from Bethlehem on the slope, downward slope east. We don't know for sure, but if you were a gleaner, it meant you were poor, and it meant you were going to go out and do hard work, and you needed permission from the landowner to go and glean on the property. Basically, God's law needed humans to observe it. And so Ruth is wondering. And Ruth is praying, like, may I go to a field where someone will actually show me favor? In fact, that's what she says in verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's hoping that when she gets there, there'll be a God-fearer in the field. The fields were a dangerous place. Hot, dusty, hard work. 
This is instructive for us. There's a lot of things in this passage that are instructive for us, but we should make it possible for able people in need to work hard to provide for their needs and their dependents. Gleaning was hard, hot work, and you notice that Ruth got right to work. The the wording here is important. Literally, verse two, she's getting right to work. She got right at it, she took initiative. This is like you going to work tomorrow morning saying, I am gonna not steal from my boss, I am gonna work hard, I'm gonna do my best because it's the Lord I'm serving. I'm gonna take initiative, I'm gonna humbly do what God has given me to do. This is Ruth, she just gets right at it. I know that every time I go to my in-law's house in Tennessee, there's the first thing I do, there's one thing I do, first thing when I get into town, sometimes on the way to their, their house, I go buy a fishing license. The reason why I wanna buy a fishing license is because I wanna get right at fishing. And so I hug my in-laws and I get right on down to the Tennessee River about a quarter mile from my my in-laws house and I sit on that dock a lot and I fish. I'm interested in it. I take initiative to do it. First thing I do when I get to town, what's the first thing you do? That's what's really important to you. Ruth got it right. She took initiative. She humbly gleans. This is what she's doing. She's admitting her need. She's accepting her poverty. She's working hard to provide, not just for herself, but for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's being resourceful. This is like you being an earnest employee. It's like you saying, I'm always serving. I'm always just going to be serving. I want to serve. See, faith doesn't sit around waiting for food to drop out of the sky. Now, there are are stories in the Bible where food just dropped out of the sky, right? Right? God does that sometimes for his people, but faith doesn't wait, wait around waiting for food to drop out of the sky. Faith gets to work and does what it can and trusts God to provide the need while it's moving. Right. Do you notice? Naomi didn't go out to glean. We don't know why. We don't know why she didn't go out to glean. Maybe, maybe her bitterness put her into depression and despair. We don't know. When you stop believing in God's goodness and you see yourself as a victim of circumstance, You can sink into despairing inactivity. If you're a believer today, you need to take hold of God's covenant promise to do you good. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Grasp the height and depth and breadth of God's love for you in Christ. And redeem the time. Ruth redeemed the time. She worked hard to provide for herself and for Naomi, and verse three tells us something so significant, and it almost sounds like everything just happens by chance. Go with me on it. She chances upon Boaz's field. Look at verse three. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, so a relative. And the Hebrew here just literally says, chance chanced upon. You can translate it this way. By sheer luck, she comes to the field. What is this telling us? Telling us that there is no human that's orchestrating events in this setting. They know, they knew, Ruth right here knew less than we do. See, the reader is reading that Naomi, verse one, has a relative, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. Ruth doesn't know that. This is just setting the stage for the story. Remember, this is a narrative telling a story so that we can glean what God wants for us to glean out of it. She chances upon 
Boaz's field. Now, the fields in those days, the fences didn't exist. The the properties would have been a patchwork of sections maybe marked by stone, maybe uh, identified by the name of the owner, but no prominent markers. And in the providence and plan of God, he brings her to the field of Boaz. Literally as chance chanced, or as luck would have it. But what the story is doing is inviting you to see there is no such thing as luck driving these events. This is all a part of a bigger plan. And nothing less than a divine appointment brought Ruth to the fields of Boaz in Bethlehem. Now, from a human perspective, sheer luck. Total chance. But God's fingerprints are all over this. God's providence. There's so many... So many stories we can tell of God's providence in our lives. I've got journals literally um, in, in my home that uh, are just stories that I can remember that God did this and he orchestrated that. And I'll just give you a, a simple one. It's, it's not even that great of a story, but it was from this summer. It was the first one I could remember, okay? And this summer I was taking a class and I, I was going to go to a conference right after the class was over. Literally the class was over in the afternoon and a bunch of pastors were in this class together, and then I was gonna literally leave and go to Auburn, California, up north, and my family was going to to meet me there, pick me up, and we're gonna go up there. Problem is, my family all gets sick. We have to change our plans, and I remember sitting in class going, how am I gonna get up to Auburn? The math isn't computing. And then I remember, there's a guy in my class who's a pastor in Auburn. So I say to him, I say, can you give me a ride up to Auburn? He's like, road trip, it was awesome. And then I get there, and I got a lot of friends there, and I, I, I drive back with staff members from a, a, a local church here that are friends of mine, and, and we, they, they brought me back home. But the interesting thing about that is there were divine appointments that happened on the way up and the way back that never would have happened if we had our, our regular plan that we were going to do. It's just a simple example, but there are, your life is filled with them, I know. God's providence. Now let's talk about Boaz. Boaz gets introduced in chapter two. And you know, verse one says he's a worthy man. It, that word is an interesting word. We really don't know what his name means. It could mean in him is strength, but his name can mean strong or wealthy or prominent or a man of standing, a worthy man, and he's all of those things. All of those things are true about Boaz. And often in the Bible, when a person's first words are recorded, it tells you something significant about them and, and this is true about Boaz. So you go down to verse four and you notice what Boaz says when he comes from Bethlehem to the fields. He says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And the reapers answered, the Lord bless you. Now what's significant about this is this is in a time when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And here is Boaz honoring God. And not only that, he is, he is teaching his employees to honor God. Significant. In a time when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, Boaz is doing what is right in God's eyes. He honors God and he led his workers to do the same. And as the story progresses, what you see is that Boaz is God's source of protection and provision for Ruth. He protects and provides for Ruth. And it's just a picture of humble sincerity, really, where Ruth is just humbly, hard working in the fields 
and, and Boaz notices her, asks why there's someone that isn't usually there. Who is this? He cares about his workers. He cares about who's out there. You need permission to be there. And what happens is he speaks kindly to Ruth. And he treats her kindly. There's kind words and kind actions. And he says to her, basically, you keep close to my workers. You know, I've got you. This is, you're in a dangerous place. You're going to be protected. And he even speaks of Ruth's faith. He says, he says in verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you've done. He had heard all about how Ruth had helped her mother-in-law and how she had chosen. Ruth the Moabitess, a pagan, had chosen to honor her mother-in-law, but also to follow Yahweh, put herself under Yahweh's uh, sovereignty and to submit herself to, to worship Yahweh alone. And he says this, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Very important phrase there, the wings under which you have come to seek refuge. It speaks of Ruth's faith. Ruth's faith. She came to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. The, the, the pictures of a protective shelter of, of a bird over its young. Wings is a metaphor in the Bible, a strong metaphor signifying strength and protection. It was connected to the exodus in, of Israel from Egypt when God carried his people out of Egypt on eagle's wings, it says, Exodus 19.4. In the Psalms, God's wings are spoken of, providing protection for those who seek refuge in him. Wings were the corner of a garment. You'll see that in the next chapter in Ruth 3. But what he's saying is, Ruth, you put yourself under God's protection. May God bless you for that. You sought refuge in Yahweh. You entrusted yourself to his care. And you decided to worship him alone. And you decided to associate with his people. He's bringing out this idea of protection. Protection is very prominent in Genesis. There's a lot of tie-ins with Ruth and Genesis. And before the flood, God protected Noah and his family. Genesis 6. In Genesis 12, God protects Sarah when Abraham didn't. In Genesis 15, Yahweh calls himself Abraham's shield. Said his reward will be very great. Boaz wants Ruth to be rewarded by Yahweh for her faithfulness and for her faith. This mirrors what Hebrews 11 says, how faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and how that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. If you're a believer today, you've got to put yourself under God's protection. If you're not a believer today, you've got to put yourself under God's protection. Believe in Christ's finished work. Believe that he died for your sins in your place on the cross and was buried and was risen on the third day and that he took all the wrath against your sin upon himself so that you could be saved. Amen. If you would believe in him, if you would seek refuge in Yahweh, you need to entrust yourself to Yahweh's care. You need to worship Yahweh alone. You need to associate with his people. You need to submit yourself to God Almighty. Through Jesus Christ. Did you notice how kind Boaz is? She even says in verse 13, why have I found favor in your sight? You, you have spoken so kindly to me and I'm not one of your servants. I'm a foreigner. I'm not one of your people. 
Sometimes it's hard to show kindness to people, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to choose to show kindness to people, to initiate good towards them. I'm wondering who you are showing kindness to. I'm wondering who you are encouraging in their faith. I'm wondering how you talk kindly and give blessings to people. Because this is something we can glean from this passage. Boaz was a model of of kind words and kind actions. And he's also a model of humble generosity. He gives, he provides. He didn't just protect Ruth, he provided for her. And she is in awe of his kindness. Here is Ruth, the one who came seeking Israel's God. And and this is probably the first time she is made to feel like she is part of the people of God. She is welcomed among those who honor God. And Boaz says, you can go ahead and whenever you need to, go and drink amongst my workers. Whenever you need to, you go and eat whatever you need. But he also gave her abundant food. He allowed her to take a lot of food. He literally heaped grain upon her. In, In verse 17, it tells us that he... She gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's a lot. It's like three-fifths of a bushel. So now you understand, right? All right, let me help you. It's 22 liters. Now you got it. Okay, 30 to 50 pounds of food. A lot of food. Several weeks of food. This is the Costco bag of rice. This is her getting grace unmerited. This is her having provision lavished upon her. And she knows she's not worthy. How many rich men in Bethlehem would have have been out looking at his workers and noticed a single foreigner and wanted to help them? It got me thinking, how many Ruths do I miss daily? How many Ruths do you miss daily in the church and in the community? How many people you just don't even see? Do you welcome outsiders? Do you welcome those who don't naturally fit? Do you welcome outcasts and strangers and immigrants and the homeless and the poor and the needy? We we see who we want to see, don't we? We see our friends. We see the ones we want to gravitate towards. And we divert our eyes from what we do not want to see. Open your eyes and your heart. Allow God to open the eyes of your heart because a heart of compassion welcomes people. A heart of compassion and kindness speaks kindly to people and acts kindly towards them. It it heals wounds, you know this, it heals wounds. Relational wounds, emotional wounds, life wounds. And we also see that it It softens hearts. This is exactly what we see happens next. Naomi, of the bitter heart, gets her heart softened as she sees God providing for their needs. She sees the mounds of food, and her attitude just adjusts. You know how that goes, where your attitude can just change in a moment? Now it can go bad or it can go good, but you know when your attitude just changes for the good in a moment? She sees the mounds of food and her attitude adjusts and she actually praises God. 
is the turning point. Her attitude begins to change. Her heart begins to soften towards God. And so she cries out to the Lord. She says, blessed is the one who showed such kindness. And she even says this in verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. And really, the ESV really kind of shows us exactly what this verse means. It says, blessed by the Lord whose kindness, the Lord's kindness. But all the scholars will tell you this verse is ambiguous at best. Very ambiguous. Is she talking about Yahweh's kindness or Boaz's kindness? Depending upon which Bible translation you have, you're like, well, it sounds like it's talking about Yahweh or it sounds like it's talking about Boaz. Here's why I I firmly believe that she's describing the Lord. There is no history of dealings between Naomi and Boaz. It's one of the reasons. And it surely has to be the Lord she's describing. She's beginning to see the Lord on her side. Oh, he's not against me. He's showing his covenant faithfulness. Think about it. In, in one day or in one moment, things can change in your attitude. You can actually come in this, in this gathering with a sour attitude and go out praising God and speaking kindly to people. I love that, that God does this. It shows his covenant faithfulness. And here's your reversal. Remember I said put that in your pocket for later and I'll tell you about the reversal? Here it is. Okay, so, so Naomi leaves Bethlehem full, goes to Moab, and says she comes back empty. Now here's, here's Ruth in one day, going out empty, coming back full. It's a reversal of, of their fortunes. God had gone ahead of her, had prepared the way, is, is able and willing to provide for her needs. And, and for Naomi, it would be he's willing and able to provide for my needs after all. See, Naomi is referring to Yahweh's goodness. And, and, he says, and she says that he has not forsaken the living. That's in the plural, which is very important. She's saying both for Naomi and, and for Ruth. Naomi is saying about Ruth that she's a part of her family. That Ruth is a part of the family to whom God will show his faithfulness. There's a lot of tie-ins here to Genesis, and this is a tie-in very clearly to Genesis 24, verse 27 which has the same Hebrew phrase, the only two times it's in the Bible, has not forsaken his steadfast love. In that setting, in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant was praising God for for providing a wife for Isaac. And Naomi seems to be quoting this passage from Genesis, this phrase, that God is showing his covenant-keeping love. The same God that providentially arranged for the finding of Isaac's wife was providentially arranging this episode. In the ordinary, with ordinary people. Surely there were redemptive connections in her use of the phrase. Here is Yahweh's plan unfolding. He is using his people in the story. He is doing this for his glory, to bring a savior into the world, to redeem fallen man, to solve our sin problem for his honor. God has been so kind to us. How many times do you say that? Is it ever on your lips? God has been so kind to me. God has been so gracious. The providential orchestration of God doing good for his people, his covenant kindness, his strong, secure, permanent, steadfast love in operation towards his people. 
and she's noticing, Naomi is realizing, it's still in operation toward me. Providence, orchestrating good from pain and loss. Two widows, comforted. Two widows, protected. Two widows, provided for. You see God's hand leading through this whole story. Even the seemingly accidental being directed by God. You can see this in your own life. And Boaz the Redeemer. We're going to see this next week in chapter 3. More on that. It points us to Christ. But what we see here in chapter 2 is that God is using Boaz to show his kindness to Ruth and his goodness to Naomi. And what you see in Naomi's situation is that bitterness melts in the face of grace. There is even a hint of repentance in Naomi urging Ruth to listen to Boaz, saying, you stay in his fields. Don't go into the fields of another to glean. Don't be like me and Elimelech who didn't trust God's provision and went into Moab during the famine. That teaches us as well. You need to allow for change in people's lives. Isn't it so easy to say, well, that person always talks like that. That person always acts like that. I don't want to be around that person. I'm going to avoid that person. You need to allow God to change hearts, yours and theirs. Allow room for repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. I've heard some really encouraging stories after we finished Romans. And I'll just share this one, one bit that someone recently said to me, you know what, there's been a lot of heart change among me and some people that, we, that, that I know as we've received and practiced the word that was taught in Romans, uh, especially at the end of Romans, which is about a church in harmony moving out in ministry together. Praise God that he brings about heart change. And how does he do it? Is it chance or providence? It's clearly providence. God's works of providence. Here's a definition of, of God's providence from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. J.I. Packer says the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they're never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. Puritan John Flavel said this, providence is best read like Hebrew, backwards. He says, only then is it possible to trace the divine hand on the tiller guiding the gospel ship into the safe harbor. No matter how dark things get, his hand is always in control. Think about your life for a moment and how dark things seem to get. Can you trust that God is still in control? I want to tell you that there's no such thing as blind providence. God knows exactly what he is doing and why. The providence is where you need to lean your understanding on God, knowing that you're blind to providence, and God has his proverbial eyes on everything. 
where you say, I, I can't see, you know, where you know you're in a fog, where you, when you know you're literally blindfolded in a situation, but you know God is at the helm. You know God is directing things. God is steering the ship. God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is making all things new. You have hope in Christ. Don't doubt that God is directing the details of your life. God's timing is perfect. You think about Ruth. One writer put it this way. In Ruth, there is this clock ticking in the background. There's this clock ticking in the background of Ruth, a timepiece of redemptive history, if you will. Here's Naomi and Ruth arriving in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest during the feast of Passover, when the harvest began. No better time for an exodus from the fields of Moab to the promised land, a fresh start by God's grace. And then the end of chapter two, end of the barley and wheat harvests. Seven weeks had passed. Now it's time for the festival of the first fruits. And Naomi and Ruth had experienced the first fruits of God's deliverance in the gift of grain from Boaz. But they've not yet seen the fullness of God's deliverance that he has planned for them. What we see as we go on in Ruth is that God will provide a husband for Ruth, and then God will provide a child to continue on the family line and to lead into the line of David and all the way to the Messiah. Um, it leads to the Davidic kingdom and ultimately to Christ. Because ultimately, Naomi and Ruth didn't just need a redeemer to give them grain or to rescue them from poverty or to get a husband for Ruth. They needed the heavenly redeemer to save them from sin. The cost for them to have their deepest mead net met was for Jesus to taste death in their place. The cost for you to have your deepest need met is for the sinless one to be made sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, God paid the price in full. So trust in Christ alone for your daily bread and for everything in your life. Don't go scratching for crumbs in the fields of another. Stick with the Lord. The clock is ticking, and God meets needs in his perfect time. Here's Ruth, a widow. Her husband has died. She is in pain. She has had experienced loss. This is like your life when you didn't know it at the time. When your kids rebelled and you didn't know how it was going to work out. When your spouse died and you didn't know how it was going to work out. When your business failed and you didn't know how it was going to work out. And what you notice later is God was providing every step of the way. Not everything you wanted, but everything you needed. I mean, who knows your life better? You or God? Who knows your needs better? You or God? Can you help me here? Thank you very much. And then you think about it. You know you're better off when you are trusting God, and don't forget this part, when you are trusting God and working hard at whatever he's given you to do. God works as you move. Here's Ruth getting to it right away, to the fields. Let me just tell you, Ruth is not a study in pain avoidance. Ruth is not a study in risk avoidance. Ruth is not a study in self-protection. Ruth is a model of trusting Yahweh as you live your life. She didn't choose a widowhood. What she chose was a rough path. 
go to Naomi to a foreign land to live among different people and be thought of as an outsider. And she went to glean in fields. Think of the Christmas story. We're in Christmas season. Think about Mary. She hears that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. And she is confused at first. God's going to provide a deliverer and she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And she is confused and she is surprised. But her response is humble obedience. Her response is singing a song of praise to God. Like we started the service with reading from Luke chapter 1. I mean, think about Christmas. There's a lot of Christmas confusion. Unbelievers don't know what to do with Christmas. A lot of believers don't know what to do with Christmas. You either have Christmas confusion or you have Christmas comfort because you've aligned yourself with Jesus. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son to redeem us. Mary goes from confusion to comfort. My soul magnifies the Lord. Ruth goes from confusion to comfort. Naomi goes from confusion to comfort. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is not by chance that you find yourself hearing these words right now, listening to these words right now. If you're a believer, you have experienced the first fruits of your salvation, but you await its fullness. Romans 8.23. I want to tell you, believers, I want to say to you strongly, if, if you are so preoccupied right now just trying to survive every day, your focus is off. Don't miss the fact that in God's time, your present groaning is going to give way to joy when you receive your full adoption in Christ. So I I just say, let God quiet your heart. Let God focus your attention on your inheritance stored in heaven. Fix your mind on the things above, not the things on earth. Let that feed your hope. Let that encourage you to persevere patiently. There will be some hard providences that come your way. Trust in Christ. You will have storms. Trust in Christ. You will experience loss and pain and tragedy. Trust in Christ. Find refuge under his wings. Follow Christ. You are never hopeless in Christ. Satan wants you to think you're hopeless. Hope keeps believing. With God, all things are possible. Look to Jesus Christ. God's redemptive plans in Ruth were just unfolding using his people in the story, ordinary, all for his glory, brings a savior into the world to redeem fallen man, solve the sin problem. Just like Boaz did for Ruth, now we sit here in 2019. If you're a believer, you're able to say, you know what? Jesus brought me in. Jesus welcomed me into the family of God. Jesus protects me. Jesus delivers me and continues to deliver me from the evil one. Jesus provides for me. Jesus gave me what I could never earn and invites me to his table to partake in his feast. He's going to lead us right into the the Lord's table right now. Let me just pray as we do so. Lord God, I just thank you that you are kind as your plan unfolds. Thank you, Lord, that you are righteous in all your ways and kind in all your deeds. And Lord, please make us aware of your engagement, even in seemingly chance happenings. All for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.
If you're new to, if you're new to grace, uh, we pass the bread and we eat together. We're doing what Jesus instructed us to do. And it's reminding us of God's provision for us in Christ. If you're not a believer, you have no, no place at the table at this point. And I just want to say that if you're not a believer, come to faith in Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for your sins in your place. Believe that he paid the penalty that your sins deserved. Believe that he took all the wrath that your sins deserved upon himself so that you could be forgiven, so that you could receive God's grace and mercy in Christ. And if that's you today and you say, wow, I want, I want to believe that, then take the bread with us. Believe it and take the bread with us. Blood was shed. Blood was shed. Christ died in our place, died for us. Blood was shed. Forgiveness is offered. Uh, provision was made. There's no lack in this provision. God loves all nations, and there are people of every nation, uh, tribe and, and nation and language that God is bringing in. He is still saving people today. Praise God. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. He's telling his people, you remember me. You remember my provision. You remember. Your life is based upon it. So, need of it, all of you. There's no secret that when we come to this table... We're remembering Jesus dying for our sins. But for every believer, there is a hope that is secure, secure. And it's that you won't shrink in shame at the appearing of Jesus because you are covered by the blood of Christ. And it's no wonder that when we see that, the, you probably, some of you probably did this, you came in today and you're like, well, we're having communion today. I need to confess some sins. Praise God. You know what that means? That means you care if you're right with God and other people or not. You know what that means? That means that you're like, you got the Holy Spirit living in you and you're like, I want to be right with God. I want to make sure that there's nothing blocking my relationship with God and other people right now. I want to be used by God for his glory. It's the ones who don't care that you worry about. If you care that you're a believer, if you care that you want to be right with God and you care that you want to remember Jesus and align with him and submit to him, we just praise God for that. Like, that's a sign of life. That's a sign of life. 